वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक द सिंह टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द प्राइस एंड वैल्यू विल थिंक अबाउट द वर्ल्ड ऑफ प्राइस मिसप्राइसिंग वैल्यू वैल्यूएशन वॉलिटिलिटी इन द इंटर रिलेशनशिप्स एंड मोर वट कॉज इज प्राइज वुड दे बी वैल्यू इन द एबसेंस ऑफ एक्सचेंज और मार्केट is value a mere fabrication is value a total social fact when can price get detached from the object that it refers to can markets work only by standardizing commodities and information what are the hierarchies of abstraction in this context is it possible to have a general theory for mispricing how exactly are antiques or paintings priced and what might be the very long term future of pricing we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr anush kopadia he works in political economy of uh, money finance and banking he is at iit bombay Dr. Steena Simonson Puri she is an anthropologist and works on gambling and speculation she is from the University of Copenhagen and Professor Ajit Sinha he works on the history of economic thought he is from Azim Prem University in Bangalore So Ajit, why don't we set the ball rolling with you um, by trying to understand exactly what this interrelationship is between price and value? Do do any of them stand alone by themselves at all, or do they need each other to be understood? Um, is it is it a paired concept, or can they be thought of in a somewhat absolute sense? What is it? How is the how have our current notions come to be what they are? Maybe we start there, and we'll see where we go. well you see uh the question is difficult one mm-hmm. because when you move from authors to author you will find that the concept will start to change now in classical economics you find that value and price not price just as such but natural price mm-hmm. are used interchangeably what is natural price i will come to that sure. later so you have notions of value natural price market price and things of that nature mm-hmm. now the question is value and natural prices are they the same thing or mm-hmm. they are different mm-hmm. and uh, in marx they are definitely different because of use and exchange no not because of that but because of the value takes a very different meaning in marx mm-hmm. than in classical economics so for example in adam smith you could interchangeably use the word value and price but you see price is a relative term uh, you have uh, price uh, in terms of some other good so right. it's exchange ratio it's always an exchange ratio and value is also in 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 smith and in ricardo is used in, in terms of exchange ratio it doesn't have the absoluteness of that right but then you have another uh, concept with smith ricardo and throughout the classical economics which is called real value 
Mm-hmm. Now, the real value is a value against a standard mm-hmm. which is invariable. Now, invariable to what would be another question, mm-hmm. but which is, a, which is a scale which apparently remains constant when other prices are changing or values are changing. So is that just a standard? or It's a, it's a scale. It's a scale which, you see, when I say your price or value are relative, mm-hmm. then you are measuring one, something's value in terms of some other good. Sure. Now, when when things are changing, what is changing the values, those are different, the, that question will come. But whatever is changing values could change the both the values, uh, the scale against which in, you are you are measuring. It could all, change both of them in the same, in, in a ratio in that doesn't all kinds change of ways, ratio. All sure. kinds of ways. So it's basically, if your scale is changing, then you don't know to what extent the value of the other commodity which you are measuring is changing or not changing or something like that. Right. So you need to have a scale which remains constant when the value of other all the commodities change. And Ajit, the scale that you refer to, is it is it an abstraction or it's not an abstraction. So what 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 is a scale see, in more you, concrete you terms? See, well, in, in the way I look at it mm-hmm. is that the when you ask the question what is value or what is price is something which an economist would not ask immediately. <laughs> a sure. question like it's a question of a curious person, like let's suppose that you go to a market and say, well, Apple is selling for 200 rupees a kg. Why is it so? Why it is not 100 rupees or why it is not free or some such thing, right? But I'm surely you understand that the answer, the question is not why Apple is 200 rupees a kg. The question is why, what does it mean to have a price? Yes, I'm coming to that. Right. So what I'm saying is that uh, a curious person may be interested in the phenomenon of price just for its own sake. Per se. Right? But... For an economist, you come to the problem of price because you are trying to understand what you consider economic uh, economic phenomenon in the terms of how you understand what economic problem is. So, for example, in Adam Smith, and you have this aspect that look, uh, Adam Smith was pushing against mercantilism that wealth is not just precious metals, sure. stock of precious metals, but it is your, your uh, how well you live. So, Ajit, uh, yeah. again, what yeah. is the scale? I'm coming to that. Sure. <laughs> you see, if you ask a question to a professor, you'll get the whole uh, you get the whole lecture. Thing. Sure. Whole lecture. Yeah, that's. But anyway, so I understand you. You want to cut short of the whole thing, and uh, <laughs> the the point is that Adam Smith had this problem of trying to understand well when wealth changes, how do you measure it over a period of time? Right. And so, if you measure it in terms of gold or silver or coins, the coin are also their value is changing so how do you so this is an index number problem but he does not solve the problem in terms of index numbers Mm -hmm. what he says then he asks the question what is the ultimate cause of value what, of value or of price? Because for thing. Adam Smith, it's the same it's thing. It's the same thing sure. at this time. Sure. So what is the cause of value? And then he comes to this answer that in the beginning, man must have you know, worked against nature directly to get something. 
सो दिस इज दिस इज द अल्टीमेट प्राइस विच मैन पेज टू गेट समथिंग नाउ वंस यू हैव समथिंग देन यू कैन नाउ वट इट इज इट गिव्स यू पावर टू बाय समबडी एल्स इज वर्क राइट सो इट इज लेबर विच विल बी नाउ फॉर हिम the scale how much labor any commodity can buy so the amount of labor congealed and not congealed yeah. but the amount of labor you can command for that for that commodity value, you for, have for that notion. so that makes the so the labor makes the scale for him so you see the scale is coming out I'm not whether that scale is good scale or bad scale. Then, that is a different question. But then, what is labor? It's not a standard unit, right? It is the standard unit for him in terms of how much of labor any commodity can buy will measure its value. But is real labor, terms, isn't real labor value. abstract, Ajit? Because there is no such thing as one unit of labor, right? Yeah, but the la- the abstraction of this labor is only to the extent mm-hmm. that let's suppose that your labor is you are very skilled and I am not very skilled. In that case, Adam Smith would say, and all classical economists mm-hmm. would say, which is a problematic thing, that we leave it to the market. So the market has given different ways. So there isn't just one labor. There are different. There are different kinds, kinds of, labor, of labor, but those different kinds of labors are. Being remunerated at different rates, but in then the we market. don't have an invariant scale. No, no, but you use that difference as a as a multiplication factor sure. to homogenize all the labor. Sure, interesting. So once the you have homogenized, do you think of it in those terms the, the as well? Qualitative differences, not qualitative differences. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ajit, is that um, Smith thinks that labor is a better measure because the I don't know if he uses the phrase, but the sort of calorific content hmm. to create a human life is less. Variant than the prices of gold and silver. Gold and silver bounce around. So, as a numerator, as a measure, uh, the uh, human labor is 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 a is a better measure in a sense. Also, and, for and, the reasons and, you articulated, but also because it's more constant. And Anush, what do you mean when you say calorific content required to make a life? You mean just the amount of energy we need exactly. to live? Exactly. So there's I mean, there's so so there, so the the as Ajit was saying, the the problem of that the classical economists set themselves out to uh, solve is to try and f- to try and find uh, the meter rule right. for the economy and that so to, is to, all of this essentially some kind of translation into some forms of energy no, well no i don't think smith made that made that transformation he stopped at labor and sure. and i think most of the classical economists did stop at labor but i'm saying smith makes a statement at some point it's a throwaway statement i don't think he reduces it to but for instance people like amartya sen would say there's a hu- basic uh, set of human capacities there's basic uh, you know there's a basic minimum requirement that is um, that is required of a human life and that idea in amartya sen is multidimensional it's not just is multidimensional but right. you can create an index out of it so you sure. can create a human development index sure. referring to the index number problem earlier so there is this idea of what is socially necessary to use a marxist term uh, to recreate uh, the minimum requirements for human life and that minimum then becomes if you like the arbitrary measure uh, uh, for then uh, measuring Which value index up ago. yeah yeah right. and and all of complex labor is reducible to more or less units of the simple labor amount so ajit will kind of maybe just get one or two sentences from you on so today as things stand and you know adam smith was there a couple of a few centuries ago is there a way of thinking of price and value in very distinct terms today, you see uh, as things stand today i am not that hung up on the words price and value sure. as such you see the 
one has to understand that the question of price or value, we don't approach it or I don't approach it as standalone question to which I want an answer. Sure. But the question I arrive at because I'm trying to answer something bigger mm-hmm. and that I cannot get to unless I solve this problem. Now, in the end, what I want to say is that the way I look at it is that the classical economics is a basically a paradigm which is suggesting that when you produce something, you produce income. That right. income gets divided into three parts, basically profits, rents, and wages. Right. And the question is to what extent this division of the income which is produced is related to the prices of the commodities. Right. 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 So to what extent div- distribution of income is independent of prices right. and prices are determined in such a way that those given distributions get accounted for. Now, in this classical paradigm, which is what I think is a paradigm to a large extent, uh, you have the idea Smith gave is that income distribution is independent of. You can determine that, and given those, you will get a set of prices. Right. Right. So that is that relation exists. Now, in the modern way of thinking, income distribution and prices they all get determined simultaneously. Mm-hmm. They cannot be separated out. Mm-hmm. Now, in the classical paradigm, if that is correct, if you can separate it out then economics becomes a larger field Mm -hmm. because the problem cannot be reduced to market. It's the distribution of income requires understanding of politics, class struggle, this, that, all kinds of things will get in. Whereas in the modern way of thinking, everything can be brought to market because it's the market which solves the problem and the problem is very fundamental and that is resource allocation. Sure. You have you have scarcity of resources and you want to efficiently allocate it and that's constraint maximization problem is the fundamental economic problem. Sure. In classical economics, the problem is reproduction of a given system. So these are two different paradigms. What's value for you, Anush? Let me just build on uh, what Ajit was saying for two seconds because I'm I'm fascinated at the way he set up this distinction between classical and and, and neoclassical. Um, in my, I'm obviously not trained as an economist, but in my understanding, both neoclassical and classical economists adhere to something called the classical dichotomy, which is that they separate out the real economy, commodities producing commodities, and the no, and the monetary economy, um, and yet what you said sounded like something like neoclassicals actually because they see everything determined by markets and market values and prices determined simultaneously or distribution of prices determined simultaneously that they have a more a deeper role for money precisely because they have a deeper role for markets but of course that's not true they both classical and neoclassical do adhere to um, the classical dichotomy, which is to say the independence of the nominal um, uh, from the real. Is it possible to think of uh, these notions without the notion of money? I don't think so. That's where I'm. That's where I'm. That's where I'm coming to. I think that fundamentally, um, while I recognize the problem that the classical uh, economists are trying to solve, and I, if I had to pick between the two paradigms, I'd probably be closer to the classical paradigm. Um, I don't think that it's it's productive to think about um, value without money, um, because the economy is not doesn't function 
absent the institutions that money make make possible. I think measurement. So, so, so market isn't an elaborate part of system. I mean, market with money. Precisely, precisely, and and, and that you 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 put your nail on it, you put your finger on it, um, hit your nail on the head, whatever the metaphor is. Um, <laughs> the the uh, it's not an elaborate part of system. That's exactly right. It's shot through with a particular kind of institutional power. So, what is, exactly does money do, Anush? So, money commensurates. So, so, so I, I this is commensurate. This, so, yeah. so this is the, this is this is I think part of the that's where um, measurement comes in, and we'll where, go to Stina quickly. Where, where, yeah, where measurement comes in, but also I think where the um, the idea of the classical dichotomy, I think, for me, breaks down, which is that how do you understand the Marx's uh, starting point is is not exactly Smith's starting point, but certainly uh, Marx's starting point is, is is the Aristotelian starting point, which is that how do different things become the same? How are they even measurable? How are right. they even right? So they start, or at least Marx starts from this point that it's the enigma of commensurability. How yeah. do, how do different things uh, even come into relation to each other? Yeah, how are shoes similar to apples? I mean, Precisely, and what, what so, so equivalent rather in some exactly some and, and, sense. and the ancient uh, uh, idea the Aristotelian idea is that they are translated into money values purely by convention. Mm-hmm. That there is no deep uh, logical or sociological reason why these things can happen. It's a it's just a bartering convention, and we've so got there's this nothing money. metaphysical about it. There's nothing metaphysical, and there's nothing ontological about it as well. Right. There's no deep. Uh, um, so Marx says that Aristotle doesn't have, uh, because he lives in a slave society, he can't understand this notion of human labor in the abstract. Hmm. And that, in fact, it is building on Smith and Ricardo. Uh, he will develop this idea of, of, of abstract human labor, um, which is labor in general, hmm. um, not just particular labor. So every, every article of labor, every piece of particular labor has two dimensions to it, the particular and the general. And it's the, the general uh, idea of labor, um, the abstract idea of labor, that is the common denominator that enables commensurability. Um, so, so I think, for me, rather than starting with the uh, distribution problem, which is certainly one way to approach the uh, the classical tradition, the, the way I approach it, certainly Marx, and my, my, my reading of the classicals is uh, clearly colored much, uh, very much by Marx, is the problem of commensuration. And when you start with the problem of commensuration, I think, uh, the, there's a set of things that then can enable commensuration. Labor is one candidate, and I think that uh, it's probably not a very good candidate. And even even labor in, in in the abstract is probably not a very good candidate. And obviously, there's a particular politics that comes out of saying, you know, the world is created by labor, so you know we should uh, workers of the world should unite and so on and so forth. Right. Um, right. So right. so I think that the the um the but commensurate even if labor is seen to be a flawed candidate, the question of commensuration remains. Remains. And I think the. the Part of the work of the monetary system and the, and the, and the, the set of complex, highly politicized institutions that go into the monetary system, in fact, do the work of commensuration. And so, if, so that precisely is money's role. That is precisely money's role, and that is that is, if you like, a monetary theory of value, a monetary institutional theory of value, rather than a labor theory of value. No, that's interesting. Which is so, so, there's so some interesting flags here, which we'll open up as we go. Stino, we travel to you, and there's somewhat informal. Economies um, do some of what is being said resonate with you? What is value for you? And you know whether it's horse racing or somewhat informal trading of grains or spices or whatever it might be. How does some kind of an equilibrium emerge? Maybe we bring that term up, and you might use it in a different context, and we'll refine that as we go. But what 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 are these notions for you? I mean, the starting point for me is is quite different than the two of you because um, as a 
typical anthropologist, I start with the ethnographic field. You start more, with the human being. Yes. <laughs> um, more than than a theory of price and value, I, I my, my also how I will present uh, my ideas on this will be from like how I've I've observed certain um, prices mm-hmm. and values um, in particular contexts because sure. the typical anthropological theory would be that that price is always embedded, mm-hmm. like that there's no such thing as as, as um, a, a a price a, a particular way that price works out there that the price and value just as value. So you don't think of price in the abstract. You think of it in very. Oh, we, I mean, I would always go in and look. How is the price um, kind of? How is it reflecting certain things that is specific to a particular setting? Right. So. I've actually been quite uh, inspired by this uh, very uh, broadly read uh, article by Clifford Geertz, mm-hmm. Deep Play Notes on mm-hmm. a Balinese Cockfight. He was, cockfight? Yes. <laughs> so, um, because actually what he, he's describing, he's, trying to, he, he's looking into betting odds. Right. And uh, he's trying to link, he's actually trying to see how price is embedded. Because he's seeing how the development of odds, which is a form of price, and you could say an inverted form of price, how um, it's, it's from pattern the is price, tied yeah. to um, systems of value in terms of the cox, but also honor in this particular setting. So he's showing how price developments is tied to a particular context. And Geertz, he, he, he's known for very kind of cultural turn in anthropology, but he actually had a background in economic anthropology mm-hmm. and did like studies on developing economies and stuff like that. So in my studies also, my, my interest in price came again also from uh, observing uh, odds move and when you say in, specific, a, in a betting setting. When Sorry? you say specific, Stina, what do you mean? You mean specific processes, specific interactions, um, specific cultural norms? So, so, so for example, I observed these arts move at the Delhi race course, mm-hmm. and I could see that they moved very differently than at the race course in Copenhagen. So <laughs> why is that so? Hmm. It's horses. Right. They're running the same distance. Right. How could the odds act in such a different way. So that was kind of my starting point. So so the conjecture or the hypothesis there being that there's something about the market participants or market yeah, with or a the, small Yeah, or M. the context in which right. these prices occur, right? So what I found at the the Delhi race course mm-hmm. was that um, there was this general uh, understanding that, uh, that the races were controlled because simply there's so much more money in the betting economy compared to the actual racing economy. Right. So you can win 100 times the amount by losing a bet, making a deal with a bookmaker, then you can, uh, losing a race, sorry, right. as a horse owner or as a jockey. Um, you can make so much more money losing a race than winning a race. So the logic is quite Clear, right? So, so the everyone, speculative economy is larger than the real yeah, economy, or something exactly to that the, the informal speculative economy. Or right. It's informal. I mean, betting is legal, but most betting is done illegally, which sure. is again why, because legal uh, betting actually pulls money into the sport. But if it, the betting is done illegally, it 
doesn't give the sport any money, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so the money, so to say, stays in the speculative economy. So I asked myself, so, so I tried to understand this context, which of course, again, we have to understand that it's tied to the experience of living in Delhi. So the, core, know? the core insight so far, Stina, mm-hmm. is that this widely held belief that the system is rigged yes. or, or just this difference between real and speculative economy. So is the core insight that the system is rigged or is it just that the speculative economy is larger so we might as well focus I mean, it, 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 it goes together, right? The, 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 the idea that it's rigged is part of the fact that the informal economy is larger so than the formal economy. Yeah, it becomes a cause. So, it, so it's actually, I mean, it, it's almost like an economic calculation, right? And they, and these fetters are making the economic calculations when they are coming up with their theory about rigged races, which you cannot prove because no one will talk about rigged races. So it's really, right. but, I, but I showed how the, I, but I was interested in how this, this um, kind of uh, shared assumption of the rigged system what kind of prices came out of that? Mm. And what I found was a uh, very high volatility in price mm-hmm. because the constant here was not the horses, so to say. So mm-hmm. you could not look at the horses and say, oh, this horse is uh, has done this in the past and I assume that the value of this horse or the potential value is this, which would create kind of constant odds or more or less um, calm odds. What's so the constant? No, oh, sorry, constant was not... The also, so the constant is the people um, around the horses, right? So what I found was that people are not betting on the horses. They're betting on the network <laughs> among the people of the horses. So then like, the horse race like, is just a proxy of sorts to kind of bet on each other's expectations, behavior. Yeah. So it's some Keynes kind of a multi-agent Ke- system. Keynes' beauty contest. Yeah, it's a beauty contest. Uh, uh, in a sense that you're... The average opinion is trying to guess what the average opinion is. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's 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 Keynes's beauty contest. Okay. Right. Right. Um, so, right. Yeah. So and and, and 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 this also gets what to say the so the volatility is even. Um, I mean, so what I also found is that as soon as a as an odds stop start dropping, which is actually uh, uh, when the odds drop, it's actually when a, a horse is valued more. Right. Right. Um, as soon as it starts to drop, it gets like a self um, self-fulfilling yes. kind of tendency. So and because everybody jumps then in. everyone are assuming if either you get some information through somebody you think are part of the network who has the knowledge, or you read it as a signal, and you right. see it as a signal that uh uh here's something going on, and you start doing the same. So what I saw was that again and again, like there would be this this sudden drop in the price. Mm-hmm. Of this future product, uh, futures contract, you could almost call it, within two minutes. So I see that again. We we're talking about scale before. It's also about which scale are we kind of measuring mm-hmm. the value here? Is it at the scale of the horse, right, or at the scale of these informal networks? Right. But whatever it's scale you, yeah. whatever scale you slice it at, at the either at the scale of the macro economy or at the scale of the race course, it seems like to me that there is sort of some general uh, kind of dynamics. And mm-hmm. one way I think about what a theory of value is, is that it helps participants and observers of a market map between something observable and something unobservable. Mm-hmm. Value is not observable. Price is observable. 
so because we can we can look it in up in this we case can, the can, odds are observable in this case the odds are, which are or, proxies or right? whatever so right. or in a financial market financial prices are observable or uh, and so on and so forth but a theory of value allows us to say whether the market price or the natural price is above or below is the market overpriced or underpriced we only, we can only say these terms if we have a particular theory of value in our heads that right. this is the actual value, market is high or market is low, right? And but that could be a subjective sense. It 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 it, it so in a, in in a sense, we all have our own private theories of value, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the kind of the the pure uh, neoclassical view, or the Hayekian view is that you know one we all have individual theories of value, and the market basically summarizes right. the it's it's a publishing it's an information processing machine that 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 summarizes our particular ideas of value at the subjective level but of course the classical response is that whatever your subjective theories of value are there is an anchor there there is a real economy that is anchoring your um, uh, your subjective speculations to which in the long term your price will adhere what do you think of the speculative price in a different way anush no i think that that's i think that i think i very much uh, sort of um, i recognize what what steen is saying i mean i think there are very much dynamics where value can uh, price can travel very far from value mm. um whatever value i mean whatever one's theory of value is objective theory of value is and i do believe there's one out there that price can travel very far from it um um and it there is no natural self correcting mechanism there is no kind of you know efficient markets the, these are very kind of socially constructed things markets are very socially constructed things any particular market is a set of institutions that has rules that has norms who can trade how much can you trade you know what is a circuit breaker in a stock market but nothing it, goes off forever right so there's some it, it may be delayed self correction um as as you know i, I was it Ma- warren buffett who said that the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent sure <laughs> so you, you know so so it, it it yeah i can stay irrational for a very very long it what if irrational means Again, even if there's reversion to some kind of value it may be in the very it, it, it may be in the time horizon which is far exactly. outside of but but of course you know what no no one has a meta theory of value you just have your particular <laughs> theory of value right? right you think that i think that the current, the indian stock market is currently absurdly overvalued at 30 approaching 30 per pe but pe is just a theory of value Sure. <laughs> it's it's right it's just it's just a particular theory of value i mean and whether or not whatever the real is even if you are in possession of it you may that might not be very good information if you don't have the liquidity to actually see the trade out right i might have a very good business idea it's to take it away from the stock market yeah. but uh, if i can't actually put the idea into being and hit the right market conditions at that particular historical conjuncture then so what you know uh, So in your case Tina um when you say that the Copenhagen race course is different how was it different or, or how is it different or there are, so what there does are, there are two factors because one is that um there was not this assumption of of the the races being rigged sure which made still the the, so the horses the, uh, like a uh, so more of a scale at which value there? was was uh, mm. calculated sorry so uh, were the bets or the odds uh, less volatile there they were much less volatile um another thing is also that <laughs> if we go into the specifics of it that yeah. in india you have uh, the bookmaking system as well as parimutuel betting or the totalizer mm. but it's really the bookmaking system that is popular mm-hmm. and so it's two different ways you can bet so to say 
where and in Denmark you only have parimutuel betting. Parimutuel betting works in a very different way. That's more like a lottery. Right. If you don't know the odds and uh, to begin with, you bet on a horse uh, as the, the there will be kind of a uh, showing on a screen the odds that you might expect right. to get or the payout you might expect, but it doesn't the final odds is not until all the betting is done and there's a pool and it's divided among the winners. Right. So it's a very different setting, right. which also make, and what I found in the bookmaking setting is that the bookmakers themselves are adding on. They're also market the, makers in a way. They're also betting. They, they are not setting their odds. It's not like a mechanical odds. They also believe that the races are rigged. So they're also on this kind of taking part of this bandwagoning. <laughs> um, Thing. So, 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 so in that sense, the totalizer being a very, very different system kind of doesn't have that. Uh, That's so interesting. What does this mean to you, Ajit? Well, is, uh, is, is, uh, is, what does this speculative zone for the classicist in you? You see, uh, it's all very interesting, but the problem is that you cannot... You don't see a theory popping out of this. No. <laughs> for, for simple reason, you see, the way I would try to to understand it is that you know, you cannot have a theory of price because what we are doing is we are trying to take a word and trying to figure out what it is and then anything which has price should somehow be explained by that. No, so we definitely don't want to reduce no, it to no. something linguistic. No. I mean, you yeah, can no, do it I the understand. way you like. I understand. Yeah. But conceptually, I'm saying that this is what the neoclassical economists did. What they did is like they said, well, when you are looking at uh, labor theory of value or whatever, you have things like, you know, antiques and things of that nature where I could say that, well, there is no labor gone into it, but it has price. So, so, <laughs> so, so then it does not, your labor theory of value, which is looking at just production, does not explain the price phenomenon. And then they said that we have a more general theory, which is basically based on scarcity. Things have value because they are scarce. But the way I would go, so there is a general theory which will explain the phenomenon of price, which mm -hmm. is scarcity. Now, this whole speculation and gambling and things of that nature from the classical point of view is that you have a hierarchy of things. So one would say that there are basic goods in Serafian terms, which are goods which go directly or indirectly in the production of all the goods. Right. Okay. So there are that, that commodities you, in the stricter sense, uh, basic yeah, goods. Directly yeah. or indirectly. So that gives you a set of commodities which you will call basics. And that basically sets up the whole problem of distribution and the relation of distribution with prices. On top of that, then, easily you can add the goods which you will call non-basics, which mm -hmm. are ma mainly consumption goods. They don't go directly or indirectly in the production of the goods. Mm -hmm. Now, the goods, uh, not, not the goods, but you could call it goods gambling or whatever, all these, they are not even normal goods. What is happening here is that you have, after the production, you have income. And these incomes are, one way or the other, now moving from one hand to other That's through so speculation and this and that. That's what is happening. Right. So I will put it very far. It's very far from the production paradigm. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the whole pricing problem as we set up, because this is 
redistribution or re, uh, income changing hands through certain means. Right. But after the basic income divisions have taken place at the production level, you know, for example, like <laughs> at the production level, we don't even take account of trade and things like that. Right. Or retailer. Right. No, retailer gets its income, but retailer is getting its income after the income distribution has taken place and things like that. So you can add those things at a later stage of analysis rather than try and understand all these exchange of pricing problems. So in one what, what would be the speculative element in production? Uh, production itself would have a risky element. You're, we don't know if the production process is going to yield, if the market will be there. Marx talks about realized value versus produced value. So there is a speculative futural element even in production itself, right? Okay, you see, there are two aspects to it. Mm -hmm. One is that if I'm an individual capitalist and I am venturing capital in the market, I am taking risk. Now, this is somehow is the, re, uh, the way people try to justify profit income in the neoclassical sure. framework. Well, I, I take risk. I should get some return for it. Now, but risk as such does not produce anything. What is happening is that if you take the whole economy, then there is a profit income. Now, given so that... So you think it's just redistribution? No, no ju just a minute. Given that you have a profit income, a share which comes out, now I can explain a higher rate of profit in one sector and lower rate of profit in another industry, given the differential in the risk sure. involved in the market. Sure. But I cannot explain profit as an income category in the macro sense on the basis of risk. Yeah. You understand that we have yes. to explain from the point of view that there's some product, some a class has been given a right to certain amount of goods and services produced for some certain reason, whatever that is. But risk itself is not doing that production. So, but that's where it gets interesting, right? You, you, you have to complete. No, yeah. You have to understand that what can be explained, the differential, differential rate of profit can be explained through the risk factor. But profit as such cannot be explained from the risk factor. That's but right. money That's itself... Right. But the level of production can. So, so speculation, etc., for example, I am speculating that this sector will give higher profit because the demand is rising there, etc., sure. etc. Those things are there. And so the markets are fluctuating because of that, etc. So as an individual capitalist, I am doing that. But if I want to understand profit as a phenomenon then I can't understand it from an individual capitalist perspective. I have Correct. to understand it from the, the whole holistic perspective of the economic system. But talking about that holistic, so sorry, Stina, just to follow up this line very quickly. So, so assuming monopolization of the means of production in the hands of the state or taking the capital, capitalist class as a homogenous block, um, forget the differences between individual capitals. We uh, we as a block of capitals or we as a collective collective proletariat are making an investment bet. We control the means of production and we're investing something in, in the future. Mm -hmm. That 
whatever surplus that then is produced by that productive system is itself, even at the macro level, subject to risk. Because my bets still might not come off. I put the seed in the ground today, uh, some bad weather can come. There is fundamental uncertainty. In So you strip away all the class relations and you still have uh, risk in, in a productive system, which determines not the distribution, I think but the total amount. Maybe we're talking about different kinds of risks. No, then. I get his question. He's right. Hmm. He's talking about what Marx calls realization problem, that you have produced something so much, but then there's not enough demand, let's suppose. No, no, not even, not even uh, assume no market sure. even. Yeah, yeah. But my, but my plans might not pan out. Yeah, I plan pl- to produce 10, I can only produce 7 because I have a technical fault. Forget yeah, there's no, no market in that also. Case, in, that case, in that case, if I write, uh, if I write your technique, hmm. I always write it post-factum. So after the production has taken place. Mm. So if it has come out seven, it has come out seven. Whether Mm. you thought it will be 10 has no meaning to me as a social scientist who is trying to understand. It does because I've made a bet. I've made a bet at at time A. I've made a bet to produce 10. But as it turns out, you have this this problem, right? Arup is a a very famous infrastructure firm, right? And they build huge bridges and roads. Absolutely the best technical firm in the world, the best brains, the best minds. Systematically, not for political reasons, but systematically on very large-scale infrastructure projects, costs are overrun. You So you cannot estimate, even the best people with all the experience in the world don't seem to be able to estimate accurately key what my cost of production I is, understand is, is going. exactly. So that's, so that, that's what that, I mean. So no, that's not a... That, that's, no, that's that, fine. That, but w- me, what are we discussing here? Like, if, yeah. if I can. Yeah. You see, there are two aspects to it. One is that, of course, in the real world, either your inventories are building up or, or getting, you know, eaten up because you are not, you know, in, in harvest, for example, going up and down. This happens. So you look at average and work it out that way, long term, etc., etc. The point is that if you are a Shrafian then you write the equations not from the point of view of what the capitalist was thinking, but from the point of view what the data turns out to be. Oh, I see. Okay, so in that so case, post-factum, yeah, right? it's post-factum. So it will not make any difference. Whether you're, you're making losses or whatever, that's not... I have to just see what comes out as a distribution and, and set of prices and their relations. Stina, you but, had something to say. Yeah, uh, I... I think we should be careful not to think of speculation as something that is uh, disconnected f- from production and that is done by the, a capitalist class. Um, I mean, I've been interested in seeing how actually also uh, the, 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 like a speculative approach to farming, you're saying that there's risk in farming, but, uh, uh, but besides that risk, there's also an, a possibility for farmers to speculate in the market. like um, While producing. While producing and after so harvesting, not necessarily divorced if you have, I mean, there's of course uh, some families who have to sell off right away, right? Sure. And for that same reason, there's also a particular pattern of the market sure. because, um, for example, in Rajasthan, where they mostly have kharif um, crop, um, a lot of the production comes out during Diwali and wedding season. So a sure. lot of things get sold off and it's an easy profit because, okay, if you have the money to buy it or to keep it, you just wait to January and the prices have risen, right? Sure. Um, but what I have been interested in, in seeing was actually I saw th- this um, <laughs> price escalation, I like to call it, of the race course. I was interested in seeing that outside in the real world, so to say, uh, and and found it in this 
area of Rajasthan where um, the price of this grain called guar, which was originally fed for cows, became part of international oil markets because you use it for the fracking industry. Sure. Um, so overnight, these guar seeds kind of boomed, right? Um, and this kind of changed the... Because the market the, changed. The market changed. It, it, it also changed the, what to say, the... The expectations the, the, around The expectation, the, the, but also the valuation of guar. Right. Even though prices dipped, the, it, or the scale at which guar was understood. Sure. Um, so you see f- in this area also that this gave rise to kind of a more speculative approach to farming, where you are willing to take um, the risk of waiting for changes in the price. And you even have farmers not only producing, but also buying seeds um, in the the faith that the prices will change dramatically. So there's obviously a feedback so, loop of sorts between the real and the speculative Yeah, domains, my point is just that right? I don't think that this should be separated and I definitely don't think that we should only think about speculation as these things that the capitalists do at right. this big scale. I think that we have to think production and, and the speculative economy. We have to th- think of it together and how is it actually kind of... Um, uh, and intermingled, is, is it, and how does that f- uh, feed back to, and Stina, to the is value? It, is of it things? more complex than that? Is the is the notion of so so? Do all commodities have equal amounts of speculation? Do I mean, uh, of course, there is. Um, in India, you have this in terms of uh, food commodities. You have this NCDX market. Sure. Um, which the commodities started in 2004, where the different uh, commodities you can you can trade them as futures contracts, right? This is not all commodities, so they, they are different. I think the question is why do some commodities see higher speculative activity? Why do I mean, some see see um, lower? But I I mean I made what what I, I an observation I made which I find interesting. Um, for example, is that in 2012 this Badra was uh, kind of introduced at the NCDX market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this pearl millet that's very kind of and that's uh, that must be a large real market. Is that a, is that a large real market? Uh, yeah, huge market because sure. it's both a part of the daily uh, diet of many many people in Rajasthan. <laughs> uh-huh. um, it's also part of the cattle's diet, sure. um, animals diet, which is a major food market also. In this area, um, so what so, was it inside? So what I so yeah. but what was interesting that it was in- introduced, but there was absolutely no trade in it mm-hmm. in the NCDX market. Mm-hmm. And I asked around, like, why are you not trading? You're trading in Chana, you're trading in Guar. Why not Badra? <laughs> and people were like, No, no, Badra, we eat. You know, right. so it was as if I got this sense that Badra <laughs> was associated with so much cultural value, at least in this area. And every time I would go. Uh, eat with people, they would go on and on about Badra and it creates heat and dakat <laughs> and, you know, all these things that somehow it it it, it steered away from this. So you're happy ethic. trading I, I, There's probably also also factors. I'm just noticing this as, a, sure. as an interesting factor. And what's also interesting was that uh, that, that cultural factor s- uh, somehow also managed to p- keep prices down. So right. Badra is actually relatively inexpensive. Right. The fact that it it's not being stocked, right? It's just it it's produced. On we go, and it, it so 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 prices are extremely stable, 
mm-hmm. there's no speculative activity around Batra. Mm-hmm. So in this situation, you almost see as which, which is almost counterintuitive of... that the cultural valuation of something actually keeps prices low. Right. That wouldn't go all. I mean, you could talk about gold. I don't know. That's a different story. But gold is altogether a different story. But it's just interesting to think about that. What does the cultural valuation of things do? Does this make to sense price? to you, Anush? Uh, yeah. Just reflecting on that, the the um, I think. Uh, Michael Sandel, who's a, a moral philosopher, has a recent book on markets and morals. Right. This idea that what, in principle, can be put to market and 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 what shouldn't be, right? So just because we can make a market out of things, ought we? Um, and uh, how people draw the line, they draw the line differently. We don't have um, a market in people anymore uh, because we don't have sl- you mean slavery because we don't have slavery exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but but of course, from Marx's point of view, you can say we have wage slavery, where it's not your person that's the property but your capacity to produce namely right. your labor power um that is commodified there's another theory um that um because precisely because we can't have a market in human beings um yet that is the key asset and, and a kind of tacit but the labor theory still stands at the, least to some it, people it absolutely <laughs> still stands because in in the following way but but we can't have a it's a kind of tacit financialized uh, kind of tacit right. nod to the in the direction of the classical economists because they say okay so labor is the key asset but we can't monetize labor directly so how should we do it let's um uh, marry the labor to a house Right. And then we can create a commodity out of the house, right? right? We can we can have mortgages, and we can commoditize the mortgage and have mortgage derivatives. So, in other words, mortgages are merely human capital derivatives. Yes. In in, in effect, they're they're they're, they're linked to households. They're linked to they're linked to households livelihood. and yes. and thereby livelihood and thereby the labor itself, right? So, so one way to buy and sell people is to attach them to houses, and then buy and sell the houses. So, so that that's that's one way that we've kind of done an end run is around slavery laws and. And created a <laughs> and created a market in human capital. That's so beautiful. By, by, Is by, there a way to think uh, why mispricing happens? I mean, uh, it's very difficult to say what is mispricing when we have a feeling that, for again, it. Again, we double back on the question: What do you mean by mispricing? And you would have to have some theory of value in order to articulate something is mispriced, right? I mean, so 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 you uh, so uh, and so assuming so one, one way to articulate it, Anush, could be that. Time and again, there are instances in asset classes and commodities where huge losses are suffered because it. So that could be one way of saying that potentially, at least retrospectively, they they were mispriced and then so there's two. Crash that, I, I think of this in two, in two ways. Again, hmm. I, I I don't believe along with the neo. I mean, so to critique the neoclassicals, I don't believe that value is merely a kind of aggregate of subjectivity, uh, an, ab- an ab- aggregating subjective utilities. So I don't think... You don't think it's only conventional? I don't think it's only subjective. It's uh, only subjective. I, I think there is a kind of, you know, a, a kind of objective theory of value out there. Now, the problem is... Uh, but it's objective in a different kind of it's way. It's objective in a, in, a, in, a, in a sociological way, in the, right. sense, in the sense of it is not reducible in a kind of methodologically individualist way to aggregating individual preferences or indeed aggregating individual production functions. So there's something emergent about there's it. There's something emergent about it. The whole mm. is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. Now, the problem is, the, 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 as it were, the difference in with social measurement and, and natural measurement, and there's a fundamental difference between the, here between the natural world and the <laughs> social world, which goes back to these kind of um, methodological disputes that were there in, in, uh, in, in, in the German uh, academy in the late 19th century, something called the 
methodens, right? The struggle over methods, um, whereby the, the social sciences are trying to break free of the natural sciences. Part of the problem in of neoclassical economics is that it was very much self-consciously aping physics, physics, yes, um, and trying to kind of uh, the, uh, occupy, uh, 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 sort of mimic the kind of reductionist method of physics, whereas the other side of the struggle over methods was like, no, the natural world is, uh, is different from the social world in this fundamental sense is that human beings are inside it. Mm. We are inside the machine that we are trying to We are almost measuring understand. ourselves. We're yeah. measuring, well, not exactly, because we're actually building something objective of us. Right. We're, bu- we're building a, a machine that has its own dynamics, um, so it's not reducible to us, but we are inside it and building it and changing it at the same time. Mm. So, so just because value is objective, that doesn't mean it's transparent right. to, to each of us who are inside the machine that we're trying to construct. So that explains error. Right. Uh, part part of the reason that we can't because is because we only have each of us one part of the elephant. If you know the the parable about the blind man right. and the elephant, right. so so because we by construction, not because of you know uh, whatever behavioral economics or bounded rationality or anything, but but because of the ontological fact that we are inside a thing that we are also trying to understand. So do you link it to the notion of size, Anush? So the it's very not, fact that it's, it's, it's not probably just the size. larger you get the. The, the lesser your ability to I think the four of us here can create emergent phenomena it's 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 not, I don't think it has to do with size I you think, think so we, we, I so think for we, example in the race course the prices whatever odds that emerged did it did it end up surprising all the bookmakers or do you know what I mean was there something emergent about whatever the derived numbers were do you know I what mean, I mean um, what's interesting was that uh, the there was always be like the theory um the theorization of what was going on would always be after, after the race, of course. right? Yeah, exactly. So, so in that sense, each each um, but result like, or the the way the arts move mm. was building on the theory exactly. on which they were betting. Exactly. So, so, just, so just yeah. to come to your point about back about mispricing, right? This is it. You're, we're we're inside the machine. Right. We're always going to therefore misprice because it's 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 sort of great. But then there's a political element to that as well, mm-hmm. because not all of us inside the machine are equally capable of setting prices. Some are more price makers and some are pro my, more price takers. So there is some a are stronger agent, some are precisely. Agents so, and so, so, so 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 we don't all benefit equally from mispricing. Some people can take advantage. So and and some people can ramp up prices. At artificially amplify the mis- inherent mispricing, and some people can dampen it, and so that you get a politics of mispricing, as well as just the kind of you know nature of the case. Mispricing. And you mean politics of the nature in in the sense of power. Some people in the have, sense of power. Some exactly. people maybe have greater proximity to whatever power is in that context. That's that's right. So so that's why you get a politics of it. So there's an in principle reason why you have mispricing, but there's also a political amplification. Or dampening of that image, and and in in the kind of political economy of contemporary capitalism, you have, uh, as it were, capitalists in a very schematic sense who benefit from that, right. and the state tries to dampen it down. And right. in a kind of standard social de- democratic setup, you get a kind of trench warfare right. between capitalists and the state, and the the system dynamics at a macro level can be can be understood in large part by the state of play in the in the, in the internecine struggle between as it was state and capital and if we think of ajit this um, this so we've spoken of the notion of emergentism and if we kind of put the notion of equilibrium on top of it all kinds of equations different factors different commodities do you, do you, does the whole notion of emergentism agree with you in the way you think of it 
because you know i mean this is very different from simultaneous equations which just solve each other and something pops out as price right yeah you see i mean there are uh, it's it's very difficult to bring all these strands together because it's all dispersed right. and uh, uh, and we mean mean and, them in different and, senses. And if you think in terms of theories, you have separate theories to understand, and 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 the theory of price comes under uh, that picture. Uh, and we, so it's difficult for me. But what what you you your question about mispricing is, mm-hmm. is that you have a notion of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So you, if you have a general equilibrium notion that there would be a set of prices at which demand and supply would match in the market, and then that comes to Anusha's problem of what if I, I expected it but it didn't come out right. So then what happens is that the prices, which is what Adam Smith called market prices. Right. So the market prices could be different from natural prices where the prices are equilibrium. So market prices could be called misprices or false prices. Right. Like in, in, in general equilibrium framework, if you if you have different prices which are not equilibrating all the markets, then the auctioner will say, okay, no sale or buying takes you place and you readjust, right? But can only one sub-market be no. mispriced? No, in, 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 in general equilibrium, no. Right. Because Valras law is that, you know, uh, price weighted excess demand aggregate should be zero, which means that if one market has excess demand, other will have at least one will have excess supply. Right. Okay. So, but there would be at least two mispriced submarkets. Yeah. So you right. cannot have just one market in this equilibrium. But then in Keynesian economics, you have this <laughs> Cla- Robert Clower. He basically argued that that Walras law is is valid only if you have auctioneer who is doing this adjustment. Some, right. But if you allow prices uh, exchange to take place at what you call misprice, he mm-hmm. called false prices, mm-hmm. then the incomes of the agents will change. And in that case, you may have only one market out of equilibrium. And that he suggested Keynes was saying that, well, labor market can be out of equilibrium, rest of the markets may be in equilibrium. Right. So Walras law will not hold. Right. So that is a possibility if you allow exchange and in real world exchanges. So in a scenario like that, place. there would be widespread unemployment or very there low wages. There would be wages. widespread unemployment, whereas like... Most uh, of goods, the other metrics look fine. Yeah, the <laughs> goods market are in equilibrium, so there's no tendency for the goods market to adjust. So the, all other <laughs> markets are not adjusting and labor markets is out of whack. And what do you do? So that is, but that's Clower's interpretation. That doesn't mean that everybody accepts that interpretation. Do you accept yeah. it? Well, <laughs> that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, Why? <laughs> because I don't live in Walrasian world. I live in Sharafian world. Do we so, so let's get back to the Sharafian world yeah. for one second. So, so, so what's, where is money in the Sharafian world? Well, there is no money in the Sharafian world the way you understand money. Okay. You see, there is no money in general equilibrium world also. Correct. Which is why because the, because the money price some standard sale, commodity. Yeah, in the, the price. World. Yeah, the price standard commodity can be assumed as a money, but it can never be real money. Right. It can be only notional. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, the uh, Economic theory has not been able to incorporate money 
in price theory but yet. Ajit, I mean, th- there are some of some of these really smart and beautiful theories. Do they explain the real world at all? I mean, are these theories at the end of it? Well, I mean, again, because you know, it's one thing to have theories about some distant star. We're eventually talking about theories about price and things of that nature. It's fairly human. It touches our lives every day. Somebody loses a job. Somebody becomes a millionaire. So all kinds of things happen. So how well do we understand it? How well do we? How well does theory agree with what yeah, we see around ourselves? It's for, not theory's for, fault, but for, they're for, doing the best. Yeah, but <laughs> you, you, we have several theories. You know, they are competing with each, each other. So which theory one is talking about? Uh, valuation theory is one kind of theory, which is dominant theory in terms of understanding the price phenomenon. And but the big problem you have is that in these theories there's no time. There's no so time. There's no time. And, and the real world you are moving a, a long time. So what, what do you mean there's no time? There's no time in the sense that everything happens the, instantaneously. Everything happens everything instantaneously, clear, simultaneously. simultaneously, and that auctioneer is taking that time out because right. if you have to do the adjustment, it is not moving a long time, right? So. Uh, if you, <laughs> but real world is moving a long time. So uh, basically, what it tries to do is to give you a sense that there are forces out there in terms of functions, and given those functions, you can think of forces which will operate this way. And you say that well, over the time, if you see movements like that, my theory is one way or the other no, approximately but, uh, Ajit, explaining. No, but I think the question it. is: Is it difficult to incorporate time into theories? It, it is. It is very difficult. Mathematically difficult. Mathem- conceptually also difficult. I I do think that ultimately in Sharafian context, I'm thinking of time because in Sharafa also, there is a notion of time in the sense that it takes time to produce. But then, at the data level, after the fact, you just have simultaneous equations or whatever you solve it. Now, how do you understand time? You move along, and I think the way to understand time would be very, in a, uh, in not in terms of continuous time, but time as uh, intervals, moments, intervals, moments, moments, not intervals, but, but just moments, moments. In- instants. So, so yeah, it's like photons. Instance, so, yeah. So you can stack them up. So one moment, another moment, another moment, another moment, stack them up uh, over period. So time can be stacked up the way Einstein stacked up time and created space time. But there's progression to it, right? There is. There yeah, is, you can then see. That you can then see if you create. A, they're nominal. One follows another. Yeah, so you, you. They're you, in time. You, of you course, create so. a create a three dimensional uh, this thing where, like you know, one dimension is time. Is uh, is there a time dimension in your world, in in the world of your bookmakers, in your traders and speculators? I mean, that, in, in, I mean empirically, there, how I is would it also there? add that how or oh, I would the, the problems. I, I I agree that that time is a very difficult thing, and of course, once you talk about speculative economy, um, the whole futurity, like the future, becomes a scale of time that is added to the present continuous time that is going, so to say, which complicates matter even more because, you know, you're not only acting in the present yeah, or your understanding of the press, but you past. But you act you, in the present. You right? act, yes, but... And specula- on, excuse, yes. Speculation about future is the present. Yeah. Yep. But, so but it's, it's not future. Speculation about the future happens in the present. Yeah. Yes. So there's, there's simultaneous clearing happening. Yeah, so think to that effect. Yeah. 
It's not That's future. true. But 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 it still has its own what Let me say, ask you another um, question. Do your bookmakers and all, all all some of the somewhat informal people you deal with do they need a theory or they they're doing okay? Um they do because I mean that's what uh I mean the theory is kind of their their constant so to say. That's what keeps them keeps them on track so and and, I mean, they're, they and, they're, and they're very red they're very flexible actually they they adjust their theories mm-hmm. of price and 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 when there are instances where their theory and price doesn't match up they'll bring in another theory which doesn't mean that their other theory will will <laughs> it won't rule out their theory they'll just add the other theory so they're, but they're more like kind of very dealing with right? their theorization very flexibly Hmm. Um, but what makes it exciting is that there's actually something very exciting about these <laughs> theorization, and I think it's part of the excitement also of, of speculation and gambling is that you actually it's a very theoretical That's <laughs> kind because of exercise gambling where yeah. you t- actually you're well, trying to understand really big capitalism systems. Capitalism is gambling. Absolutely, <laughs> you have to. I don't see. I don't see why Facebook's bet on uh, a particular kind of line of. Uh, action is any more or less speculative than what the people are doing in the race course. It's funny. Sure. It's at the, but I, I will say this about about the uh, futural element vis-a-vis speculation is that when you say these are just frameworks and and uh, heuristics, um, yes. I mean, this is not to privilege a certain kind of theory mm, or another. No, no, it's not about privileging. It's about. Uh, you know the kind of Wittgensteinian idea of putting hooks onto the world. If we're moving forward in time into a kind of uncertain, into an uncertain kind of future, what what we do is we we project, and then we make bets along these kinds of projections. But then we actually put real resources behind these bets. Yeah, the actions are real. The actions are real. You take a bet. I take a bet. We're actually hammering things into the world, and thereby constraining. Uh, possibilities. The possibilities. So there's path dependence, right? And we are, in a sense, um, laying down the track and then walking on it and then laying down the track into Further an open... And so on and w- so on. But, but the, the horizon is fundamentally open. But we constrain the horizon by our collective track. By lane. where we have been. History matters. History matters, but the future is also... But, but history is therefore constrained. Yeah. The, our range of motion uh, uh, is, is, is constrained. And that's what institutions do. Institutions are our collective product that constrain the direction of forward travel. Now, errors can build up in that structure. Yeah, you can you can have a kind of entropic. Uh, um, and they can uh, also compound over they, time. They can so. compound, and then the structure collapses. Right, that's sure. your that's your mispricing uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of dynamic. But one of the key elements in in terms of the kind of this Strafian idea of hi- a hierarchy of, of 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 goods and basic goods, for me, one of the key elements in that hierarchy, perhaps even at the top of that hierarchy, is money, because because money enables us in a in a market dominated system in order to get a hold of resources in order to make our collective speculative bets about the future we need money now we so we either exchange our labor for money or we pledge our labor or we borrow the money or we sell our shares to collect money but we need money to kind of move forward and then we kind of using this money project out into the future our kind of collective bets and so our heuristics then combine and congeal to form this kind of rough and ready superstructure, which then we inhabit going forward, and 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 we sort of build the bridge as we're kind of going. I think on the it. interesting question is that you know whether it, whether it happens in the context of the race course or it happens at the level of the macro economy of the whole world, the basic goods let's let's call that the real economy or whatever, 
And on top of that, you have all of these other layers coming up, uh, just as the speculative economy in that toy context can become very large relative to the core real horse racing business. Could this become infinitely larger than the basic goods economy? That seems to be happening, right? The financialization of... With, and so money, money is also a certain kind of commodity, maybe, isn't it? Is, is, is money, it is, it serves a certain function. Uh, money is, is, is money infinite? Absolutely not. Money is not finite. Money is a claim on our collective product. Money money is, uh, is, is that's what it is. But it, it is a claim on our collective product through the intermediation of a set of institutions, which are sure. banking, which are state, which are taxation and so on. Sure. But when you wash all of those uh, institutions out, I mean, they are, the dynamics of those institutions are very important. But sure. when you look at it, it's a claim on resources, not on future resources, on present resources. It, that that's what it is. It is. It's so so. You cannot simply you know inflate away money. It's so. But that's not the same as saying that there is no. That is a which is why economy. it is a super macroeconomic question, Ajit. Let, let, so yeah. at the level of the macroeconomy of the world, how large can this? How large can the non-basic goods economy be relative to the basic goods economy? It can be very large. It can be very large depending upon what kind of uh, relations, uh, uh, surplus, how much surplus the system, how productive the system is. Correct. So, uh, but in terms of, you know, money is very difficult. It's very important, but very difficult to understand. But (laughs) particularly when one is talking about prices, where by prices one means exchange ratio between commodities, then let's suppose silver. When silver is playing the role of money, it's a commodity also, right? Sure. So when we are talking about silver, if silver is money, then why gold is not money? Why why copper is not money or why cloth is not money? Anything can be. It has from, to do with no, that would be standard. Yeah. Sure, we know we know these why, classic arguments. Why why silver becomes money or gold becomes money? That's a different sure. question. But sure. it's a good. It's a commodity which which is so here. The money's role is is measurement role. That I am measuring your worth or value of other goods, right? But there, when he is saying that. Again, that money basically is something which is a claim claim over basically resources out there or output or income produced there. Now, if I have, let's say, land and I can sell it, that also gives me a claim over what is out there. Anything which has price will give me a claim over something something else. Because they are commensurable again. Again, you get into the same problem. It, but, but only by means of an intermediation through money. Land by itself is illiquid. It's wealth, but it's illiquid wealth, right? So you have to first sell the land. As anyone who has had trouble selling a house knows, it's not a simple matter of taking the money out of the bank. Yeah, it right. is a matter of the form of that. And that form is not an equally which fungible maybe, form. Which maybe makes an appearance as a transaction cost or something something to that effect. It's not but simply, they may be super illiquid assets. I mean, exactly. Liquidity is not merely a transaction cost. Liquidity sure. is life. Without liquidity, you're dead. Sure. You, you, you either you have to ensure every economic sure. unit. This is the Minskyan point has a survival constraint. Sure. You have to ensure a positive flow of liquidity to you. So to say that you have land is 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 no good. You're, you're right. So that is one way of suggesting that money is there because it makes it convenient to transact or mm-hmm. move from one to another. Uh, so. But the question, ultimately for me, money, the, what gives, makes money money is that it's a means of deferred payment. That you ultimately which is, say... Which is a claim, which is an IOU. Which is yeah, to, which is an IOU. And the IOU 
can be made in one in money so that is that is where future comes in absolutely you know so money is always associated with this future absolutely. whereas price theory does not have future that's, that's the big absolutely. theoretical absolutely. Problem, problem in yeah. introducing so money so what is the future what is the future <laughs> of price and pricing 500 years out 1000 years out in terms of theory or in terms of price itself you see in terms of what you see now i give you one one example of for example if you look at marx a quick one ajit yeah okay <laughs> if you look at marx one. and schraffa yeah in marx if if productivity rises to the extent that we can produce most of what we need to live very quickly then we move into the realm of you know plenty sure. and pretty much everything will become almost free and we are in the world of total third stage of communism there won't be any prices and etc etc so However, everything could be free theoretically i doubt it my my position is that you can have a completely robotized system where there will be no labor but still you will have positive prices and profits and in that case what other what people will do and what well, sure yeah that's so interesting then, then then you have a serious serious political problem <laughs> and then you have to create some system in which income has to be distributed for system to survive sure. but but the, it is not that if you move labor away from production Price prices will disappear no it will not that the schraffian equation can tell you that and takes will all in, in a different sense what's the future stina I am thinking that uh, there I'm wondering whether price volatility in basic goods will increase actually as kind of a speculative ethics um because as there's more and more comes surplus into, to 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 various levels even down to the level of production in a place like India um but what about the world I mean the India's, world uh, what do you mean the when you say future of price in the world Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> you know it all. You're just like sharing it with us. So um, I mean, the future of price in the world. I, I don't think. And what do you I mean an when you say that? Sorry. What do you mean when you say speculative ethic? I mean that that um, that one is not just acting in the world um, uh, for a kind of to achieve. um or on the basis of um kind of stable set of resources but uh acting more on on the potentiality right um so this this uh, seeking this potential the so, future potential so is a world without speculation likely it doesn't seem so no and i also don't think it's a the new desirable. it's not that it's it's a new phenomena right. i more see that there are new platforms new institution that might emerge new technologies that enable speculation to exist in different ways at different scales and for different people what's the future anush and the land with so that? i i i've i've read somewhere that uh, 10% of the world population can produce all our needs all already so where we are already at we are a stage in the future we're already at a stage of super productivity uh, uh, so it it really is um a, a question of the relations of production that are built on top of our um uh, productive capacities that maintain the dynamics of market and price and so on that 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 we see right now in price i mean 
is the classicals are absolutely right that price is really just a distribution mechanism it's an allocation mechanism to allocate the surplus um, and it is done through a market system but if we if we have already super productivity we can think of and of course this is a classical communist trope we can think of a more directly political uh, means of distributing the surplus as opposed to having a rationing system through um, through price and that's all that really um, the price right. system is from each according to his ability to each according to his need is a political maxim that distributes it rather than a price maxim him. Um, and but, but, and but, all the discussions about basic income yeah. uh, in the in the context of what some are calling super luxury automated communism, um, <laughs> uh, uh, where where you have super surplus and and all the conversations we're starting to see in various uh, around the fringes and in, in various parts of Scandinavia they're having this conversation. I think in Finland they're having a conversation about basic income are precisely trying to understand what the directly political um, means of distributing the surplus are separate from the price system. But a super luxury automated communism is not is it is it all equal does it does it imply equality no it it requires a, a basic flaw it, sure. the, it doesn't require equality of outcome it 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 requires a, a basic set of endowments that people would have and then you go off and do what you want on top of that but it necessarily implies a certain notion of state some kind of a um some it, kind of a body or mechanism or protocol that I think it would. Yeah, I, I I think it would uh, some kind of collective agency to kind of uh, to regulate that. But we already have that. I mean, if sure. you look at uh, the most advanced economies in the world, I mean, the U.S. the state is 30% of GDP. Sure, the, it's an absolute behemoth. The major parts of their expenditure are already social expenditure in terms of what they spend on the social sector, in terms of uh, the the welfare bill, and so on and so forth. That's already in place. Terrific, terrific. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take Thanks care. Thanks for having again. us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.